Luke 7, 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Luke 7, 37. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, kept wiping them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher, 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered, 43, and said, I suppose the one, one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Now in Revelation 17, if you turn over there, we have two women that are symbolic in the book of Revelation. And these two women represent two different paths, two different lives. One of the women is described as a harlot. We would know the term as a prostitute. The other one is described as the bride of Christ. To skip ahead for a second so you can see the latter of the two, the bride of Christ, just take a peek with me at a few verses. The first I want you to look at is Revelation 19.7. We're in the marriage supper of the Lamb setting. We'll look at this in a few studies ahead of us. But it says, uh, let us rejoice, 19.7 of Revelation, and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Flip over to Revelation 21, look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready, 21-2, as a bride adorned for her husband. If you go down to verse 9, notice same chapter. It says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, come, he, come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Sometimes in this imagery, you have dual explanations. First, the imagery is of a city, then it seems to be of a person or a people group. And so that's kind of how the book of Revelation works. In 22.17, at the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, it says, 22.17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Now we're going to flip back to Revelation 17. That is our study tonight. As we look at the judgment of the great harlot, I wanted to introduce this concept to you because I want to tell you that even though we're talking about a bride and a prostitute and really two polar opposites in this imagery, um, it is true that people who have sinned against God, uh, people who have fallen short of the glory of God, I'm sure this room is filled with people like that. Amen. We've all sinned. You can say amen even to negative criticism because all you're saying is when you say amen, by the way, you're just saying I agree with that. So if Pastor Michael asks for an amen, it would be very gracious of you if you say I agree. Unless, of course, you don't agree. If you don't agree, don't give me the amen. All right, there you go. Anyway, the reason I... It hit me to bring out the story about this woman that was probably a prostitute is to tell you that Jesus was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, a friend of prostitutes and tax collectors. So there's hope for all of us, no matter where you've come from. I don't want you to take me wrong here that this image of this prostitute means that no one who ever had a lifestyle that was considered sinful ever came to Christ. No, if we come to Jesus, we can be forgiven of every sin we've ever committed. But this image of this prostitute is kind of the opposite. She's the contrast of the bride of Christ because of who she is and what she represents. And what she represents is really pure evil. She becomes a symbol for the world system in rebellion to God. Whereas the bride of Christ becomes a picture of a individual or a group of people, the church, who are showing fidelity to the lamb. They are married to the lamb. They are the bride. There is a relationship of monogamy there. And what I'm talking about is spiritual realities now. I'm talking about the fact that the Bible often uses images like harlotry or prostitution and adultery to speak of spiritual realities. When God makes comments about the ways of Israel and what they did wrong in times past, he said they played the harlot with their idols. He's not talking necessarily about the, the immorality, although sometimes immorality was associated with idolatry. He's talking about spiritual defection. He's talking about people who know better and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They choose their path because they don't want to live under the auspices, the laws, and the love of God. In Revelation 2, I think it's verse 4, the church at Ephesus is told, you have left your first love. And it is possible even for the bride of Christ to wander. We uh, just studied the story of David on Sunday. He was in love with God, but he still made a huge mistake. But these categories are more fixed here in the book of Revelation. They become symbolic of two different responses to the Lamb. One group of people who have shown fidelity to him. In fact, they're willing to die for him in the book of Revelation. They're willing to give the ultimate, uh, pay the ultimate price. But the other group is, has prostituted themselves. They have gone with the world system. They have taken the mark of the beast all for their personal pleasure or all for their personal preservation, which is short-lived anyway, because I'm sure you've noticed that most people ain't living past 100. So this life is temporal, temporary, and most people don't make it to 100. Although it seems to be odd, sometimes people who run marathons drop dead at 50, and then you have George Burns who smoked cigars and drank until he, he was 99 or 100, right? 
Done. Don't know how to. What did I? Did I say something? Did he make it? Anyway. But he was God in one of the movies, and maybe that's why. I don't, I don't know. Never mind. You know, when you think about, and this is obviously an adult theme, but here it is. When you think about a prostitute, it is someone who sells themselves for gain. Now, let me qualify. People have ended up in prostitution because they've been forced into it. People have ended up in prostitution because maybe they had no other way out. But I'm talking about someone who ends up in that lifestyle. In essence, what they have decided to do is sell their body for money or sometimes to keep a habit going. Let's face it, a lot of people who end up in prostitution, it could be both males and females, are addicted to a substance. And so in order to uh, get the next fix, they sell their body. And then we have a lot of branches that go off from this tree. We have the sex uh, slave trade and we have a lot of terrible, abominable things going on. But in this picture, if we just take the basic premise of it, a harlot or a prostitute is one who's decided, I will sell myself for gain. And the person who pays the money pays the money for the pleasure. So it's a two-way relationship, if you will. But it is prostituting oneself on both sides of the ledger, is it not? And, and for what? For a moment of pleasure. Uh, but basically, you end up defiling yourself and you break what's, what's known as a basic covenant in Scripture. A covenant of marriage, a covenant of fidelity. I was talking about all of this on Sunday, if you were here, and I was talking about the fact that when you are with someone sexually, it, is, it leaves an imprint on your soul. It's not just some casual thing. And so this image of this uh, harlot or prostitute embodies a world, a world system, which most scholars would call it a system, which is anti-God. It will not accept God's ways. And, and in essence, what it won't accept is two things that really start with an L. It won't accept God's law, and it won't accept God's love. It won't accept God's law. I will do it my way. I will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I don't want to be under God's commands. And it will reject love because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. But this is the condemnation that, that God sent his son into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because, think about the words, because their deeds are evil. And they won't come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. Does that sound like a decision to you? They won't come to the light they won't come, lest their deeds should be exposed. So they don't come because they don't want that light. They'd rather stay in the darkness. And the darkness becomes a metaphor for the devil and his kingdom, the world system. The light becomes a metaphor for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light. This is the struggle. This is the, the ongoing conflict of the ages. Will you follow God or f follow the world? Will you march to the world's drummer or will you follow Jesus Christ? That's really what it comes down to. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either going to follow me or you're not going to follow me. 
Out of the gate, when he began preaching in the Gospels, he would say to those he called, follow me. And it has the essence of a command. It's not a suggestion. Do you remember the rich young ruler? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What good thing must I do? Good teacher? Hey, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Follow me. You'll have treasures in heaven. Now, people get nervous right there. Does it mean that I have to sell everything I have to follow Jesus? Maybe. Because <laughs> there are some people who may be in that category. But for the most part, no. It was a specific deal to the rich young ruler. Because he wasn't following Jesus. He was following money. He was saying, show me the money. The God he followed was money. And Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. Money is neutral. It's the love of money that's the problem. Everybody with me? So Jesus says, here's your problem. You follow money. You say you want to follow me, but what you're following is money. So get rid of your God and follow me, and I'll give you treasures in heaven. Oh, but the, the rich young rulers... His, his face sunk, and he walked away sorrowfully. And by the way, if you've read the account before, Jesus does not run after him. He doesn't say, please come back. Let's reason together. Let's talk about this. Jesus let him go. And then he said, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who then can be saved? You're one of the apostles standing there. Come on, man. <laughs> I thought rich people were blessed by God. That's what I saw on television last night. <laughs> and Jesus said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. All things are possible with God, amen? Because to 95% of the world, I'm not sure if you realize this tonight, you be rich. You're probably in the top 5% of worldly wealth just living in the United States of America. Hmm, kind of changes the story, doesn't it, a little bit. I was just a casual spectator until you said that, Pastor Michael. Come on. Anyway, <laughs> we haven't even done a verse of Revelation 17 and already you're in my kitchen. All right, buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> uh, I'm in my own kitchen. <laughs> All right, well, I'll try to recover from that. Revelation 17.1 says, one of the seven angels. <laughs> We're supposed to be serious. We're in Revelation, people. Who had... The seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. I'm going to show you her judgment. Her judgment is now coming. She sits on many waters. I mentioned to you that the, the image of harlotry or adultery is used in a spiritual sense. If you're interested, Jeremiah 3, 8, and 9. Jeremiah 5, 7. Jeremiah 7, 9, and 10, and two very powerful sections in Ezekiel 16, 14 through 21, and Ezekiel 16, 36 through 43. Let me just kind of sum up what this says. 
God warned Israel, when you go into the promised land, I do not want you embracing the ways of the pagan nations. I don't want you to repeat their detestable practices. I don't want you, and then he begins to list the things that they do. This is the reason they're getting booted out of the land. Don't repeat their abominable practices. What did Israel do? Israel imbibed the ways of the nations. And if you were to name the biggest single problem for Israel throughout their whole history, what would you say it is? It was idolatry. It was idolatry. And it was captured in the fact that Israel was supposed to be the wife of Yahweh and they cheated on him over and over and over again. And there's language in the book of Ezekiel that I tell you what, I've been studying the Bible and teaching it for a long time. And I'll tell you, I don't quite know how to make sense of this. But God, in essence, says, you, Israel, broke my heart. Have you ever had your heart broken? Have you ever had someone that you trusted defect from you, cheat on you? It's pretty devastating. It happens all the time. Do you know that God knows how that feels? Because he had given everything to this people group. He had let them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and they cheated on him. And, you know, the New Testament says it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 4. I think it's verse 29. That means we can make him sad. We can, in essence, break God's heart. The only way you can have a broken heart is if you care. Amen? Amen. If I didn't care, it wouldn't break my heart. But there's things that, you know, we look at, whether it be news reports, people that we love going through tough times or our own personal struggles or journey. It means that we care if we have a broken heart. God cares. In Hosea 4, 12 and 13, and you know the prophet was told to go and marry a woman that would cheat on him, perhaps even a prostitute. He said, my people, 4, 12 and 13 of Hosea, consult their wooden idol. Their diviner's wand informs them, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. They have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains. They burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. And this is the, the picture that God paints of wayward Israel. And the old hymn writer captured it because we all know that it's possible for all of us to fall. In fact, we read 1 Corinthians 10 on Sunday where it says, take heed, be careful, lest you fall. And the hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's a struggle. And we struggle with the world system and we struggle with, you know, the carrots that get dangled in front of us. We struggle with the system that, you know, sometimes dresses up and looks pretty and offers, you know, what it offers to the passersby. In Isaiah 121, as God's dealing with Judah and Jerusalem, Isaiah 121, he says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. In the book of Nahum, God is addressing the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. We'll talk about Assyria in a moment. Nineveh was the place that Jonah was supposed to go. And Jonah, upon hearing God's directive said, oh no, I won't go. 
And he bought a ticket, took a ship, headed out. And God said, oh, yes, you will go. (laughs) And Jonah said, oh, no, I ain't going. And God said, well, I do control the weather. So if you want to stay on the boat, we're going to have a storm. (laughs) So do you remember he was sleeping and they had to wake him up? Hey, cry out to your God. We're dying here. (laughs) And they they drew lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And they were like, all right, give us your story, bro. (laughs) Where are you from? What are you doing? I'm a Hebrew running from the living God. (laughs) Oh, thanks for your honesty, brother. (laughs) Well, they tried to fight the storm, but you know what happened. They had to throw him overboard and custom made fish picked up Jonah at the intersection of sea and wave downtown. And there he was. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the great sea monster three days and three nights, so the Son of Man must be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He was the regurgitated prophet. First converts in his ministry were surfers. No, I, I don't really know that. <laughs> but it sounded pretty good. Because he had to end up at the beach, right? Anyway. 17. <laughs> By the way, uh, go down to verse 16 of chapter 17. We get an explanation. Uh, let's see. 15. He said to me, the waters which you saw, take verse 15 with verse 1, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So she represents many peoples. Look at the verse. Peoples, plural, multitudes, nations, plural, tongues. Uh, In Revelation 7, we saw people from every tribe, tongue, nation praising the Lord. And it was a a broad, uh, worldwide situation. Well, here, this woman, whoever she may be in, She's a bit of a mystery, as we're going to find out. She represents the world, peoples, multitudes, 15, nations, and tongues. She doesn't just seem to be one entity. She seems to be a bit of a composite of perhaps history past, which we'll look at in a second. This woman, with whom, 17.2, the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So here's the woman. She's there on many waters. She, we can see uh, she's a great harlot. We're going to see her judgment. And what she does with the kings or the rulers of the earth is they commit acts of immorality with her. They drink the wine of her immorality. She, she spreads her wares. She, she distributes her product all over the place. She... She's a marketer. She gets other people on board with what she's selling. In Jeremiah 51, 7, it says of Babylon, Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine. Therefore, the nations are going mad. Jeremiah 51, 7. Doesn't it seem like sometimes the world has gone mad? I mean, every day... Even when I don't turn on the news, somebody else tells me about the latest news report. 
And I just am fearful that we're becoming numb. It just seems to me that the world is going mad. And he carried me away, verse 3, in the, in the, in the spirit into a wilderness. That's kind of a, a lonesome, solitary place. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. And this had to be another strange thing that John saw, but he saw many of them. Having seven heads, the heads appear to represent kingdoms and ten horns, which seem to represent kings or power or leadership. So he's in the wilderness now, taken in the spirit by the spirit. He sees a woman. She's on this scarlet beast now, not, uh, not a, a really familiar beast to John. And it's, the beast is full of blasphemous names, seven heads, ten horns. Again, a, a strange sight. She is born by the beast. She rides the beast. A woman rides the beast. Uh, Revelation 13, go back for a second to verse 1. Revelation 13, 1. He stood on the seashore, that is the dragon. 13, 1. He, that's the devil, stood on the sand of the seashore. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns. Again, representative probably of kings here. And seven heads, probably representative of kingdoms. And on his horns were ten diadems, royal crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So you can see the link between this image in Revelation 13.1 and what we see in Revelation 17. It's the same idea. It's some sort of world system that is anti-God. And behind the system, called up out of the sea, which usually represents the people's Perhaps it could be the Mediterranean Sea, but probably just represents the peoples of the world. Behind this woman is the devil. He's the power source behind her. The woman, in Revelation 17, 4, was clothed in purple and scarlet. If I asked you what the colors of purple and scarlet represent, what would you say? Probably royalty, right? So she seems to be royalty in some way. Although scarlet also represents sin in the Bible, though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow, Isaiah 1.18. She's adorned with gold, middle of four of chapter 17. She has precious stones and pearls, well-dressed, having in her hand a gold cup. We saw that in Jer uh, Jeremiah 51.7. The gold cup is full of what? It's full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. So she has the, the great clothing. She, she's... She's dressed well. She seems to be wealthy. She's got this golden cup. But if you peered inside the cup, what you would see is stuff that's gross. Stuff that's immoral. In fact, stuff that would be considered abominable. The word abomination is used many, many times in the Bible. And it's usually directly associated from God's perspective with idolatry. What God finds abominable is people who worship idols and practice the activities that go with that. And he calls that an abomination. So she's got this gold cup in her hand, but the gold cup, the, the contents of the cup corrupt. And I'd want to write in my notes, if I were taking notes, I've already taken them, so maybe you should write in your notes. Do not drink it. Don't drink from her cup. 
but her cup looks good. Do you remember the Indiana Jones third movie when it's the... I know, I, I, these are always my fallback illustrations, I know. But look, I'm from that generation. Anyway, so they're, they're making the search for, what is it? The uh, Holy Grail. And that knight's been there for about a thousand years. <laughs> Can't even swing the sword, right? But the one terrible guy, the evil guy in the movie, he wants to find the Holy Grail because it's the cup of the fountain of youth. And so he finds the beautiful gold-looking cup, and he grabs it, and the knight's just watching. He dips it in the water. No time like the present. Go, 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 go. A couple of tingles. What's happening to me? And in another glorious moment of cinematic movie-making, he begins to age and turn into an old man. Ah, skeleton and just blows apart. And then the knight says, he chose poorly. <laughs> now, Indiana Jones' dad is dying, so he figures he better get the liquid to him, right? So what kind of cup does he pick? Well, it's a cup that looks, doesn't look like very ornate, right? It's the cup of a carpenter. Of course, Indiana Jones is always right, so <laughs> it's the right cup. The woman, she's got a gold cup, man. How many people in our world, and, and you and I included, took the bait of that cup? Oh, look, it's dressed nice and gold cup. And you take a drink only to find what is unclean, impure, abominable. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church and he says, look, you have to be careful. This is around verses 20 and 21 of 1 Corinthians 10. He said, I don't want you to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. What was the Corinthian church doing? They're trying to live in both worlds. They were going back to some of their idolatrous ways, which was very prevalent in Corinth. You could go to parties put on by certain friends of yours, and they, had, they would have you know, some very lewd, abominable practices, and people were trying to live in both worlds. I know that doesn't happen today. Really? <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> That's called irony. <laughs> right? We have that pull. We, we drink the cup of the Lord, but then there's another cup offered to us, and we say, oh, well. Sometimes with that other cup, we say, ah, have you made this declaration before? I will never drink from that cup again. <laughs> and then next weekend, you found yourself in line waiting to get another one of those cups. And you may be asking tonight, does that cycle ever end? It does. It does. When you decide that you want to follow Christ fully and you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Amen. And upon her forehead, verse 5, a name was written, a mystery. So this, she doesn't have the name of God on her forehead like the 144,000. She has a mystery name. But here's what it says. Babylon the Great, 
the mother of harlots and the, of the abominations of the earth. So John looks a little closer and on her forehead, she's got a, she's known as Mystery Babylon. The fact that it says a mystery, I think means it's not gonna be easy to interpret this. She's mysterious, but she's connected to Babylon. Now, how far back does Babylon go? All the way to Genesis chapter 10. There was this area called Babylon, and the ruler of Babylon was a man named Nimrod. No, I don't know what their, his parents were thinking. <laughs> but that was a popular saying if you were out of line in the 70s and 80s. That's what they would call you. What are you, a Nimrod? <laughs> now, just so you know the definition of the word, it actually means a rebel. Nimrod means rebellion. And he was called a mighty hunter in Genesis 10. And some people believe he was a hunter of souls. And in 10 and 11 of Genesis, mankind is told to spread out on the earth, but instead they build a ziggurat. They build the Tower of Babel. This is where Babylon comes from. And God confuses their language there. And on the ziggurat is the origin of a lot of occult uh, signs and the signs of the Zodiac. And they even trace what's called the mother-child cult religions all the way back to Babel in Genesis chapter 10 with uh, a woman named Samaramis. I don't have time to get into it tonight, but I'll just tell you that thread of Babylonianism as it's known weaves its way all the way through the, the Bible, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. So whatever Babylon is, it is an anti-God system. And remember, those people, they built a ziggurat to reach up to the heavens. They were against God. It was an anti-God move. God said, I want you to spread out, but they all gathered together. And it was an anti-God system from the beginning. It was in rebellion. And Nimrod was a hunter of souls. She, this harlot, is the mother of harlots. If you're a mother and you have offspring, you can see what she does. She's giving birth to the system everywhere. By the way, the mother-son cult that comes from this uh, ancient story, which is really a myth, runs all the way through multiple countries under multiple names, including India, Egypt, with all these different names, but all the same image. It's a mother with a little baby with a occultic kind of background to it. It's not, it's not Mary with Jesus. It's something else. And the woman, verse 6, was drunk with what? The blood of the saints. And with the blood of the witnesses, saints is hagias. It's the typical word used for Christians in the New Testament. And witnesses is martus, where we get the word martyr. The saints and the martyrs of Jesus, is it two different people groups? I don't know. It could be Old Testament saints and New Testament witnesses. It could be saying the same thing about the group. But they are saints and martyrs or witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. She's drunk with what? The blood of the church. She's an anti-God system. 
She's responsible for the martyrdom and persecution of God's people throughout time. She's intoxicated with their blood. It seems she can't get enough. And John is astonished. He's in wonder at the woman. And the angel says to him, why do you wonder? Verse 7, I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads. Remember, we've talked about kingdoms and the ten horns. We've talked about kings. The beast that you saw was, if you like to mark your Bible, here's where you need to mark it. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Thanks for the help, Mr. Angel. <laughs> Just when I thought I was going to get a clear interpretation about who this is, you tell me that the beast was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Who's that? Well, it seems to connect with the son of perdition idea. You can write down 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, the son of destruction. Those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's same language as Revelation 13, 8. And when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Now he links to the Antichrist, this beast. And part of the wonder that we looked at in a previous study is it may be that in some way he has some sort of fake resurrection or he impresses people with false signs and wonders or wonders at least that can be done by his sidekick or by him as well. And the world wonders after the beast who that he was and he is not and he will come. What does this mean that he was and he is not and he will come. Well, here's the mind that has wisdom. Here's the interpretation, verse 9, if you will. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings or kingdoms or empires. Five have fallen. One is, or you could say one is now. The other has not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, if you're scratching your head and saying, Pastor Michael, I'm confused, join the club. Because commentators throughout the decades have not really come to a consensus on what this means. In fact, there are many who throw up their hands and say they don't know what it means. There are two major views that I know of that um, seem to find some footing in different views that come forth from some different positions. Now, some believe that these are uh, reference, and I'm trying to pull up the names here right now, but to five previous emperors that preceded the emperor Nero. Nero was the crazy emperor that lived at the time of Paul and Peter. He uh, committed suicide in 68 AD. Uh, we know he killed Paul, the apostle. And tradition says that he's probably responsible for the death of Peter as well. Then he went on some weird rampage and, and committed suicide. Prior to him, there were four recognizable emperors. I don't have all the names in front of me, but they include Claudius, Caligula, uh, and others. 
And so um, then there was an emperor after him, and then you have the fall of Jerusalem. So those who are in the preterist camp that think this all connects to the fall of Jerusalem say that there were five, and then there was Nero, and then there was one more. Oh, here's their names if you're interested. The five before Emperor Nero were Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and then Nero. One more time. Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero being the sixth, and then a man named Galba who reigned for about six or seven months, I, I think right before the fall of Jerusalem, so in the late 60s A.D. Okay, that's one take. Uh, the... This view says the woman is Rome and all of this happened in the first century. Here's another take. And for the sake of time, I can't take you there. But here's what I would encourage you to do. If you cross compare Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 with Revelation 17, you will find, and I'll just give you a quick synopsis of this, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Daniel 2. And he sees this colossal image with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet mixed with iron and clay. And he's kind of freaked out about the dream because this rock made without hands hits the statue and it implodes and uh, it's whisked away in a moment of time. So Nebuchadnezzar puts a little bit of a trick on uh, for his magi. He says, I want you to interpret my dream. There's just one little catch. I'm not going to tell you what the dream was either. And the wise men were like, come on, man, I'm still in my pajamas. No wise man has ever been asked to do something so difficult, king. So Nebi, K. Netzer, it says that on his business card if you're a VeggieTale fan, <laughs> said, okay, all the wise men in my kingdom die. Where's my oatmeal? And Daniel was one of the young people who had been taken to Babylon. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. King, give me, give me a little bit of time. I'll ask the Lord for the interpretation. Well, Daniel got the interpretation and he told the king what his dream meant. And he went through these kingdoms and he says, you're the head of gold, you're Babylon. And then the chest and arms of silver are the Medo-Persian Empire. Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly of bronze is the next kingdom who was what? Greece. And then the legs of iron, tough kingdom was... Rome, the feet of iron mixed with clay. Some people say is a revived Roman Empire, the ten toes, maybe ten kingdoms or related to what we're seeing with the ten in our language, the ten horns. Isn't it horns or kingdoms or whatever? Anyway, so do you see the connection? In Daniel 7, it's with animals now, with a lion and and so forth, and it represents Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. And so take another look now, and here's the other view, and this is where I would lean. Five have fallen. The five kingdoms, if you connect Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, that would have fallen at this time would have been Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Five. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. By the way, this is on solid ground from the book of Daniel. 
Every one of those kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, and uh, did I leave out one? Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Except for Greece, although what happened from Greece is what's called the Seleucid dynasty. They had one thing in common. They all persecuted Israel. Every one of them. The one thing they had in common was a common enemy. The God of Israel and his people. Think about it. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then Greece giving birth to the Seleucid dynasty. The one that is now, middle of verse 10, who is ruling at the time that John writes Revelation? Rome. Rome dominated the world from 63 B.C. and finally fell in 476 A.D. They dominated the world for about 500 years. Do you know what happened to the Roman Empire? They actually disintegrated from within because of immorality and infighting and power struggles. And then finally they were sacked and taken. The one that is now is, I think, Rome... The other, which is a seventh kingdom, has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now this, and I'm going to have to move quickly because we're almost out of time. This is where most people say, in the end times, there's going to be some sort of revived Roman Empire, perhaps connecting to the feet of uh, iron mixed with clay and the ten toes, and maybe there'll be ten kingdoms, and that's what this language seems to indicate. Maybe some sort of... uh, uh, conglomeration of nations that come together under the leadership of the Antichrist. That's where this kind of stuff comes from. But there's been another interesting suggestion. I just throw it out for you for consideration. There was a kingdom in our recent past, less than 100 years ago, that did arise and have characteristics of these other kingdoms. And it was a kingdom called Nazi Germany. And it was led by a man named Adolf Hitler, who became the chancellor, I think, in 1933. And he was a maniac. He was so obsessed with killing Jewish people, and he killed other people, including Christians and others, that even when his troops had no food and basically he was losing the war, he was still trying to get Jews onto the death trains. They said when he spoke, he had almost demonic power. And then evidence has come that he's been, he was dabbling with the occult and had also embraced, embraced evolutionary theory. I don't know for sure if Nazi Germany is the reference here, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the empire that arose and there's going to be some sort of empire that looks like this in the future. Folks, that happened in the last 100 years. We say, we sometimes we read the book of Revelation, we go, oh, nah, it could never happen. A one world. Somebody trying to take over the world and killing a bunch of Jews and Christians. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. The beast, which was and is not, <laughs> just so you can be a little bit more perplexed, is himself also an eighth. <laughs> and is one of the seven. He's just like the others. In other words, Maybe this means 
He's a composite of, of all these kingdoms. The one thing that they had in common, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Seleucid dynasty, Rome, Nazi Germany, if we could include that one, was this, a hatred for God's people, especially the Jewish people. And we now, of course, we include Christians with all the stuff that goes on with persecution now. And he's going to go to perdition. He's going to go to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. Their dominion is still future, but they will receive, they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. That means a short duration. So when this happens, it looks like there's going to be ten world leaders who give their all authority to one single individual for a short time. And these have one purpose. They give their power and their authority to the beast. They say this 10 nation, perhaps a 10 nation confederation or 10 leaders say, we want you to lead us. These will wage war against the lamb and praise God the lamb will overcome them. This could be a reference to the battle of Armageddon, which we read about at the end of Revelation 16. Because he, the lamb, is Lord of lords and what? He's king of kings. And those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Who's that? That's us. <laughs> and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It seems like a worldwide rebellion or conglomeration. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot. All of a sudden the system which, you know, was kind of carrying them, if you will, that was connected with the beast or the beast was carrying it will make her desolate, the harlot and naked, will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Leon Morris says, evil is always self-destructive. Wicked men are not just a happy band of brothers. Being wicked, they act in jealousy and hatred. They will turn on the things they use for their pleasure. When they are done with it, they will throw it away. Have you noticed that that's kind of how evil works? Once they're done with you, they'll throw you away. I think people in corporate America can resonate with that. And God has put into their hearts to execute his purpose. God is ultimately sovereign. By having a common purpose, by giving their kingdom to the beast, their common purpose is to try to destroy God and his people until the words of God should be fulfilled. God is always in control they're already evil, and now he confirms them in their evil. And the woman whom you saw is the great city. Who is that great city? Is it a metaphor for a system? Some people think it's Rome. Some people think it's Jerusalem. It's uh, seven mountains. Poets used to talk about Rome being on seven hills. Could be a reference to Jerusalem. But the woman that you saw is the great city, which reigns over the king's of the earth, and I'll just leave you with this question. Who reigns over you? Hopefully, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And even though I know we've had some tough sledding in the book of Revelation and some hard things, there's always, there always has been since the fall and until the times are summed up, always will be a struggle between good and evil. Always. It continues into our day. And until Jesus comes and judges the world in righteousness, it will continue. 
but good will triumph. And the King of kings and Lord of lords will vanquish his foes in the end and set up his kingdom. And we will rule and reign with him forever. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. It's sometimes very hard and deep and heavy, but it's good because it tells us the truth about what you say is going to happen in history. And thank you that you already know how the story ends. You've written history in advance. That's what prophecy is. It's not a guess. It's just simply history written in advance to prove who you are. And my friend, can I say to you tonight, if you've come in here and you're not sure that you know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, this King came into the world to die for you. He loves you that much. He wants you to be delivered from evil. If you've drank from a cup that's given you a bitter stomach and a bitter life and you're looking to find cleansing and hope and fullness and life, he's got a gift for you. He's gonna ask you to drink from a different cup. It's the cup of salvation. He shed his blood that you might live he died on the cross for your sins as though he had committed your sins, though he was innocent. He rose from the dead to defeat death, which scares us all. And he's living right now and he's still able to save. And I would encourage you right now. He knows who you are. He knows that you've come in here tonight looking for him and he's here. Something like this, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Pray it if it's you. I believe that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I'm sorry, Lord, for my sins. I repent of them. I believe in your resurrection. And I want to trust you. I want to follow you. Make me your child. Place me into your kingdom. Lord, for those who are crying out, may you save them. May you seal them. May you bless them. May you lift their burdens. May you help the saint that's come in here tonight with a heavy heart. Lift their burden, Lord. Remind us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And teach us your ways, Lord, as we depend more and more on you. This is not about us being stronger in and of ourselves. This is about us finding strength in you and you making us what you've called us to be. So would you pour out a fresh blessing on the saints tonight? Give them hope, give them courage, give them strength. Bless them beyond what they could ask or imagine. The things that are struggles on hearts tonight, prayers that are being offered, Lord, to you. May you just minister discernment and hope, strength, love, assurance. Thank you that you're so good that you care about the little details of my life. You know what I go through, what I battle. But the battle belongs to the Lord. Thank you that you've placed us into the kingdom of light on the winning team. We rejoice and we thank you. And we pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand?